Welcome to See Beneath Your Beautiful, where guests share stories of adversity and perseverance, which inspire, encourage, and challenge us. We embrace these tough conversations, intimately exploring our loves, fears, and hopes with a delicious combination of depth and lightness. My name is Johnny Crowder, and I grew up with a bunch of different mental health challenges that drove me to learn about mental health, basically as much as I could learn. And now I get to work in the mental health field. So it's kind of this cool full circle life that I'm leading. And I get to learn more and more about the brain every day. And that helps me and the people I serve. The people I usually ask onto the podcast have gone through some traumatic experiences or suffered something and come out the other side, which I know you have. Can we talk about what you suffered from? And I know there was suicidal thoughts. And I'd love to just talk about all that because I think it's really important that people see that you don't have to stay where you are. Yeah. So also I want to point out, this is kind of semantics, but I think younger me would really want to hear it. It's not binary. Like it's not either you're in the middle of it or you're outside of it. There's this whole spectrum. If I made being on the other side of it, the goal, I'd be so intimidated. But if I was like, I want to be a little bit healthier than yesterday. I want to feel a little bit more hope, a little bit healthier. I want to feel a little bit more equipped. Like if I made those little short goals, I think I would have been much less intimidated by recovery. It's always a battle, isn't it? I have a buddy, Adam, who said this thing that I applied to recovery. He's applied to business, but I think it applies to recovery very well. He said, every day, a little bit better, but sometimes worse. Right. And that is the most true statement about recovery, even though he wasn't talking about recovery. Like, I know for me, it hasn't been, my chart hasn't always gone up and to the right. I was several years off medication and maybe a year or so out of therapy. And then COVID happened. Yes. And I was like, okay, if I'm losing all my coping mechanisms, like I used to travel and perform, I I sing in a band called Prison. So we were on tour a lot, huge coping mechanism for me. And then I'm robbed of my main coping mechanism. Plus I'm not seeing my friends. I'm not going to the gym. And so I actually beat myself up in 2020. I can't believe Johnny Crowder has to go back to therapy. And it's like, what kind of story is that to tell about yourself? Like, Actually, give yourself credit for recognizing that when your trajectory dips, you take measures to make sure that you maintain as much of the progress that you made as possible. And I want to normalize that. I feel like I've come a long way and I just got done with coaching because I needed help for something. So I think that's great. And thank you for promoting that. Can you imagine if you um, went to school and your professor was like, you can trust me. I've read every book and you go, well, you probably haven't read every book, right? There's probably more. And he's imagine if he says, Oh, I stopped reading about six years ago when I just figured I knew pretty much everything I needed to know. You'd be like, "Uh Oh, this is not a good teacher. Oh my God. I think I dated that guy. I dated a guy who thought he was the smartest guy in the room. Oh, he used wow. to say that. <laughs> oh man. I want to interview him pretty bad. What is going on inside of that brain? I think my greatest quality is that I don't think I know anything. I'm open to learning anyway. I heard an interview with this guy yesterday. I was listening to this podcast on a bike ride and he said something like, in order to be the greatest at what you do, you have to be humble 
because only humility allows you to ask other people questions and for their feedback. So he was like, the reason why most people aren't great is because they're not humble. I see. I was like, whoa. I lost a brother to a drug overdose and I have a husband who is 10 years sober and two stepkids who are five and two years sober. I'm three years sober, but I was four years sober at one time and then wasn't. And so was that your coping mechanism, drugs or alcohol? And what were you coping with? Yeah, so this is something that surprises a lot of people about my journey is that I have never used drugs or alcohol in my life. Okay. This is why I'm so passionate about sobriety, because I grew up with some pretty severe schizophrenia, Mm. uh, bipolar one, OCD, PTSD, severe anxiety and depression. Okay. Very antisocial behaviors, extreme anger to the point of destruction of property. And I was self-harming. And so I was definitely a very troubled child. And when I looked at my family members and how they coped, They would very typically turn to drugs and alcohol and I saw how it affected them. Mm -hmm. And I saw from my, I I mean, keep in mind, you're a kid growing up in an abusive home Mm -hmm. and you see people coping with drugs and alcohol and you, and you see from your perspective, you think, well, that makes it worse. They're trying to cope with their anger. And then when they drink, they're more violent. It seems like this is just fuel on the fire. So I made a decision at a very young age to not use drugs and alcohol, but instead I had some healthy coping mechanisms and some unhealthy ones. So the unhealthy ones are probably kind of obvious, like the self-harm is a pretty apparently unhealthy coping mechanism, but some were healthy mechanisms that I turned unhealthy because of the way I wielded them. Like what? So like music was just a, a healthy one for me, being creative, writing, playing guitar, drawing, like all of those things were really healthy for me. And when I started exercising, that is a healthy coping mechanism that then I started becoming unhealthy with. So Mm -hmm. point I was working out for three hours a day, Mm. six to seven days a week. I was engaging in disordered eating in order to drive my peak physical health. That was really just I could convince myself that I was doing something healthy. Yeah. But really, I was kind of tricking myself into self-harm through a traditionally healthy coping mechanism. So it's kind of funny when we look at coping mechanisms and we say, well, this one is positive and this one is negative. And I'm like, it kind of depends on how you're using that coping mechanism, you know? Yeah. So speaking of coping mechanisms, you've created something called Cope Notes. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah. So it is my whole life right now, or at least a big slice of it. I went to school for psychology because how could I not after experiencing all of this? Yeah. I was in treatment for a long time and I started engaging in peer support in 2011 through NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So think about this. I'm learning about neuroscience and abnormal psychology in school and it's blowing my mind. And I'm also experiencing on a personal level, the power of peer support, talking to a peer who understands what I'm going through and just feeling that sense of camaraderie and community. And so I wanted to combine the neuroscience principles that I was learning about in school 
with the peer support principles that were actually changing me, changing my heart and kind of softening me. So I had no idea what I was getting into at the time. I didn't set out to start a business by any means, but I wanted to create a resource that could use neuroscience principles to deliver messages that contain peer support. And so now I launched Cope Notes almost five years ago. And essentially what we do is we deliver randomly timed text messages that are written by peers with lived experience. Mm. And over time, they train the brain to think in healthier patterns. So it is a super cool idea that became a project, that became a product, that became a business that is now a company. Do you have knowledge that it's helping people or hope that it's helping people? Fortunately, we have knowledge. I mean, not to discount hope. Hope is a valuable commodity, but so is knowledge. For years, we had kind of anecdotal evidence, like people saying, you know, turning in testimonials and being like, this changed my life and this changed my marriage. And I'm now in rehab because of a text message and just these amazing people saying they got back in shape and divorced abusive partners. And just, I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the stories. They're on our website. I have chills you saying all those things. Yeah. So we had all of these anecdotal pieces of evidence, people telling us these stories. We probably have about 100 on our website or so. And then we were doing research with the University of South Florida. And finally, this is very new. This is actually the first time I've said it on a podcast, I think. That's how new it is. It's like literally last week, we got the research back from USF that shows that we can now show quantitatively from a research study that Cope Notes reduces anxiety and depression and stress. And it's mind blowing stuff because I've been working on it for years. Yeah. And we actually have like statistics that show like this is how people felt before. This is how they scored on like the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7. And then this is how they scored it after one month of Cope Notes and after two months. And we can actually see their depression decreasing on a graph. We serve all sorts of people. We serve ages 12 and up. I think for a long time, the mental health resources that exist have said, you know, we serve people with acute symptoms, like people who are really severe, who are really struggling. And I'm looking at the greater statistics of the mental health of our country and beyond. And I say, listen, if half of mental illness is going undiagnosed Mm -hmm. and so many people aren't even comfortable seeking out additional resources because they're not even aware that they're experiencing symptoms of mental health conditions in the first place, how do we build something that can serve people not only in the moderate to severe symptom range, someone like me who's living with multiple diagnoses, but also people in the mild to moderate range. So people who maybe don't have any real formal diagnoses, They just get stressed or depressed every once in a while. Maybe they get anxious, but nothing too debilitating yet. We want to serve those people too, because we are all about prevention and intervention. So I don't want to wait 10 years for you to be in a three-month or three-year depressive episode. I want to help you now when you don't feel those severe symptoms so that we can keep you healthy long-term. One of the mind-blowing things about the USF research is They showed that there were positive health outcomes for the people in the mild to moderate range, as well as moderate to severe. So we can actually serve both groups and kind of everybody in between, which was our goal when we set out to start in the first place. To illustrate how far you've come, do you want to talk about maybe what it was like as a kid and then how you got help, where you first sought help? Because there's so many people who just live in their suffering 
And so I kind of want to offer a suggestion on what's the first step to go get help. Growing up, like I said, I had multiple diagnoses that were all overlapping. Um, yeah. I had a really wild temper. I had a lot of difficulty making eye contact, communicating with people, forming coherent sentences. I mean, it was really, really challenging to just function and be a kid. And then also to always be on guard around abusive people that I was close to. So trying to also protect myself. I wish I could take credit for this. I wish I could say, you know, one day I woke up and decided no more. Today's the day. I'm going to get better. But that's not what happened. Yeah. And I want to kind of be honest with everybody listening and say how I actually wound up at my first therapist appointment and my first psychiatrist appointment and see my first clinicians. It was not a conscious choice. It was a result of me running away from home and punching a hole in the wall of my house and almost running someone over with my car. I mean, it was like, Mm -hmm. I basically almost ruined my own life and a bunch of other people's lives. And then when I came home after running away, my mom said, either I can take you to the hospital Mm -hmm. or I can call the police and they can take you to the hospital. And I was like, Oh, you drive a tough bargain. (laughs) I let my mom take me to the doctor and my first however many doctors visits went terribly because I was not cooperating. I had a bad attitude. I was angry. And so I didn't actually start participating in my recovery until probably nine or 10 months in to weekly visits with clinicians. So it took a long time to actually start cooperating. Mm -hmm. The thing that did help me start cooperating was doing my own research So I encourage anybody, if you're not quite sure what to do, you don't know what that next step is. I always encourage people read about whatever you're going through. It's going to sound really simple, but I went to the library and got a book about OCD. Mm -hmm. I was Googling symptoms that I had and was kind of reading. um, And then I took a psychology course in school. So like, as you educate yourself, you start to feel way more empowered because you don't have to just walk into a doctor's office and have somebody tell you about what you're experiencing. You can also come in and say, oh, I've heard that. When that doctor says something to you, go, "Mm, I've read something about that. So empower yourself through health education. A lot of people say that asking for help is hard. I want to push back on that and say it's no harder than what you're already doing right now, which is not asking for help. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're climbing Mount Everest with a backpack with all of your camping supplies in it and your feet hurt and your hands hurt and you're so far from the top and you're starving and you're cold and you're lonely. And then someone says, do you want me to carry some of the stuff in the backpack for you? Mm-hmm. I can't carry you up the mountain, but I sure can. You know, if you put some of your stuff from your backpack in my backpack, then we can kind of go up together. It doesn't take nearly as much strength to say, please, God, can you put some of this stuff in your backpack? I'm so tired. Yeah. So I think we kind of get lost in this idea that, oh, no, how would I ever ask for help? And I want to encourage you that doing that is going to be much easier long term Mm -hmm. than trying to do everything yourself. And the fact is, 
I think we get confused thinking that we're supposed to do it ourselves, but nowhere in the rule book of life does it say like, Hey, guess what? Hera owns everything in her life. She's never allowed to ask for help. No lifelines, even on who wants to be a millionaire, you get lifelines. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) Well, do you think that it's unburdening yourself just talking about it, but talking about it to who in particular you're saying that there's people who've gone through what you've gone through. And so I do think that once I talked about my childhood sexual abuse, the shame of it was lifted and the the burden of it. And I want people to share their burdens because it was so freeing for me. But I just want to know, who do you think people should talk to? Not just anybody, because some people don't understand what you've gone through and won't mm-hmm. give you good advice. So. Who do you suggest people talk to? So if you have access to talk to like a real clinician, you would be totally remiss to not go there. I mean, that's some people don't have access to that. I would just want to say out the gate, if you have good insurance or if you have therapy through your work, like an EAP program or something like that, please make use of that because not everybody has that. Um, and that's definitely the, I mean, if I could pick somewhere for you to start, I would say that's the best place is if you have access to a clinician. In the case that you don't, there are a few things that helped me. The first is actually not communicating it directly to anybody, but rather writing about it, like journaling, giving it shape. I used to write short stories and poems, songs, like all of that stuff really helped me get what was going on outside of my head. And so I could look at it and try to understand it from a different perspective. And then there are local support groups and peer organizations. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, not all of them, a lot of them are free. If you're like, man, I wish I could call up a clinician, but I don't have insurance or I don't have the money or something. I totally empathize with that. I have absolutely been in that boat before, which is why I found my way into peer support. I would encourage you to Google NAMI. NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and ask your local affiliate, because there's affiliates all over the country, if they have any free or reduced cost peer support programs and start there. Because when I was meeting with a clinician, I was actually intimidated to meet with a clinician because I was scared. I felt tiny and I felt like clinicians were these big, almost like authority figures, but there was something really beautiful about meeting with peers and sitting down and telling someone like, oh yeah, I was hallucinating a bunch of faces on the cupboard so I couldn't go into my kitchen. So I didn't eat dinner yesterday. And to, I swear to hear somebody go, yup, like what? <laughs> I'm not a freak. Like yeah. this, is, I'm not the only person in the world. That feeling is what eventually started opening me up to be a little more vulnerable with my clinician. I really love that. Thank you for that. Yeah. I just turned 30. Okay. What do you think your 15-year-old self would think of your 30-year-old self? (laughs) I don't think you would believe it. (laughs) First of all, I did not expect to live this long. So I had active plans to end my own life much before 30. Mm -hmm. I had this idea that because my brain was the way it was, that it would always be that way. And that's why learning about neuroscience was so empowering for me, like learning that the brain can change and does. 
your brain will almost certainly change. There's like a 0% chance that your brain will be the same at 15 as it is at 30. Mm-hmm. And so now I would look at myself and think like my 15 year old self would look at my 30 year old self and think, well, that's somebody else. And I would say, I know, isn't it great? You don't have to experience that. Whatever is going on inside of your brain, that is not infinite. It doesn't have to last forever. You learn things, you meet people, you stretch and grow and change. And I think 15-year-old me would be very pumped to learn that the pain that I was experiencing was finite. Yeah. So you don't have the same diagnoses as you did at 15 or you have coping mechanisms or you handle them better? At 15, I didn't really know a ton about um, self-soothing or coping strategies or, or how to get ahead of my symptoms. But now you ever see one of those old movies and there's like this old country guy and he's on his porch and he, he's like, Oh, it's going to rain soon. And you're like, how the heck does this guy know? <laughs> yeah. And he just kind of knows cause he lived there for so long. That's how I've become with my symptoms. Mm-hmm. I'll kind of check in with myself and I'll go, if I don't, start taking a little better care of myself, or if I don't get ahead of this, probably by the end of the week, I think I'm going to be a little more steeped in symptoms. So I want to do something to get ahead of it now. And when you're 15, I don't know that you have enough data, or at least I didn't have enough data. But now at 30, I go, "Mm, I've kind of felt this feeling before, and I'm going to nip it in the bud now. And that feeling of being able to identify early symptoms and get ahead of them just makes you feel so much more empowered than before when it felt like it was happening to you. That's really great. Do you have an imagined future for your 45-year-old self? Oh, man. I was wondering that yesterday. I have a buddy who has four children and runs a church. And he, he seems like one of the most grown friends that I have. I didn't know this. I've been friends with him for four years. In my head, he's like 45. And he said he was 36 years old. Oh. And I was like, what on earth? What is going on? How, how are you doing this? And we were talking about how important it is to just be open and not try to over forecast your future and make the path to success very narrow. Yeah. But rather just kind of have an idea of the impact that you want to make on the people around you and on your own life. Because I never wanted to be a, a tech startup founder. Mm-hmm. Ever. Even now, I'm only now learning to want to be it. And I'm four and a half years into doing it. So when I'm 45, I have no idea who I'm going to be. But I can't wait to meet myself, whoever that person is, because I'm going to have a lot of questions for him. I love that so much. Thanks a ton for having me and doing this. Thank you so much for your time. I re- really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, great to hang with you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of See Beneath Your Beautiful, hosted by Hara Allison. And thanks for your ratings and reviews. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Stay tuned.